Uh, so I wanted to start by popping these uh, boxes up on the screen, if the, uh, the guys can uh, pop those boxes up. Uh, so I'm wondering if you t take a look at uh, these boxes up on the screen, uh, and uh, spiritually speaking, right, uh, apart from uh, being a Christian, apart from the work of Christ, the, the power of God's Spirit, uh, which of these two boxes would you put yourself in? Well, that's the question. Uh, would you put yourself in the good box or the bad box? Would you say you're one of the good guys or one of the bad guys? One of the saints or one of the sinners? One of the heroes or one of the villains? One of the cowboys or Indians? You've seen those old Western movies. Typically the cowboys have white hats on because they're clearly all good. And the Indians are the bad guys, right? Which box would you put yourself in? This is what we kind of do in life. We divide humanity up between those who are good and those who are bad, those who are in the good books, uh, box and those who are in the, in the bad box. And typically what we do uh, is put other people in the bad box so that we can put ourselves in the good box. And I reckon, by and large, uh, the media helps us do this. Oh, they know that we've got this tendency, and so I've got a, a few examples just from this week. Uh, I'm going to flick up some headlines. We can put the first headline up. Uh, the house where killer James Todd, his, his secret obsession. You know, James Todd, uh, this is the, the, the guy who, who committed the horrific murder, really, of Eurydice Dixon. That, that is horrific. Like, I, I'm not in any way wanting to diminish that. But I do think it's the case that when we read a headline like this, on some level, over time, we think, yeah, people like James Todd are in the bad box. They deserve to be judged. They deserve to be condemned. Those are the bad guys. I'm a good person. I'd never do something like this. And so subtly, over time, we think, yeah, 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 there is a bad box, but I'm not in it. People like James Todd are in it. Or the next headline... Two arrested over alleged hit-and-run death of Monash student Nasali Pereira. Some of you have heard about this, uh, a kind of student uh, just run over out near Monash Clayton. Uh, two, uh, you know, someone just runs someone down and leaves them for dead. On some level we think, what kind of person would do such a thing? I would never do such a thing. Clearly, that, those people are the ones in the bad box. I'm in the good box. So we're like, I'm a good person, those are the bad people. Uh, the third uh, headline I've got, Scott Morrison refuses to intervene for Tamil family facing deportation to Sri Lanka. Now once again, I'm not really commenting on the politics of this situation, uh, but just to say that on social media during the week, uh, there was plenty of people, as far as I could tell, who were saying, uh, Scott Morrison's in the bad box, Peter Dutton's in the bad box, those are the bad guys, and I'm one of the good guys who's pointing out how bad they are. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to point out injustice, badness, whatever, but I'm just saying that there's this dynamic in society where we tend to put other people in the bad box so we can put ourselves in the good box. Oh, we can take that down. Take down the headlines and, and the boxes. Yeah, yeah, just keep that in mind. What, what box do you put yourself in? It's really Paul's purpose in this whole section of Romans from chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 20 is to make sure everyone on the planet understands that apart from Christ, all of us are in the bad box. All of us. All of us are sinners. All of us deserve to be judged by God. 
And you might say, well, well that, that's all good and well. I understand. I'm not perfect. I, I do some bad things all the time, uh, you know, every now and then. Uh, and so I'll just work really hard to make myself a better person. I'll get myself into the good box. Uh, but of course, Paul's message in today's passage, chapter 3, verses 9 to 20, is not only are all of us in the bad box, but we're stuck in the bad box. It's not just that we do sinful things every now and then, but we're enslaved to sin. We're controlled by sin. So if you look at the passage there in verse 9, Paul makes this point that we're enslaved to sin. Have a look at the start of the passage, verse 9. Uh, what shall we conclude then? Uh, do we have any advantage? Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. So you notice Paul's coming to the end of this argument that I've said, started back in chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, he says, what shall we conclude? Uh, at the end of this argument, and of course his conclusion, is that everyone is in the bad box. And he's talked about some different kinds of people. You remember at the end of chapter two, uh, chapter 1, rather, verses 18 to 32, uh, he talked about a kind of stereotypically rebellious person, an irreligious person, a person who wouldn't want a bar of God, uh, a blatantly sinful person, uh, and he said, yep, they're in the bad box. Then at the start of chapter 2, uh, he said, but you moralistic person, you uh, person who thinks you're better than the people at the end of chapter 1, you too are in the bad box. Because even though you've got all sorts of principles and standards by which you uh, expect to live your own life, you don't even live up to your own principles. The principles by which you condemn other people, you don't even live up to yourself. So you're in the bad box too, Paul says. Uh, and then in the end of chapter 2, he talks to a, a really devout religious person. Uh, in that case, in particular, a Jew. And he says, you too are in the bad box. Because even though you have God's law, even though you know God's law, you don't obey it. It doesn't matter who you are, Paul says, you are in the bad box. You're not perfect, you're sinful. And so you stand condemned before God. That's the conclusion Paul's coming to. Uh, and so he anticipates a question in verse 9 uh, uh, from uh, a Jewish person, uh, which is that if everyone's sinful and deserves to be judged by God, uh, do we, right, that, that's Paul's own Jewish people, do we, the Jews, have any advantage at all? Uh, and of course the answer to that is, well, yes and no. Right, if you were here last week, you know that part of the answer is yes. Right, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Do the Jews have any advantage? Much and in every way, Paul said then. Why? Because they have the very words of God. A wonderful privilege to grow up hearing the commands of God, the promises of God. So yes, do the Jews have any advantage? Yes, they do, much and in every way. But look in verse 9, do the Jews have any advantage? Well, no, not at all. Why is this? Well, it's because even though the Jews have the wonderful privilege of having God's law and hearing God's law and knowing God's law, Paul has shown that they haven't been faithful to God's law. They haven't obeyed God's law. They haven't put their faith in the God who gave them his law. So Paul says that like the Gentiles, they've shown themselves to be under the power of sin to be controlled by sin, to be enslaved by sin. Jews and Gentiles is a summary way of saying everyone. There's the Jews and there's everyone else, the nations. 
So Paul's saying every human being is not only in the bad box, but they're stuck in the bad box. Every human being lives under the rule and reign of sin. Every human being shackled to sin, and they can't get free. Sin is their master, their tyrant. Now, of course, Paul's not saying that every human being in the bad box is equally as sinful as every other human being. We know that. Different people in the bad box are clearly worse or better than others. But the fact remains that even if you can make yourself a little bit more moral or good or respectable than the next person in the bad box, you're still in the bad box. You're stuck in the bad box. You're enslaved to sin. That's what Paul's saying in verse 9. And some of us uh, struggle with that idea, I think, because we, we have a kind of illusion that we're actually free. I'm a free person. Don't tell me I'm a slave to anyone or anything. I'm free. But how free actually are we? I am not free to be born in Mozambique. But I was born in Melbourne. That was outside of my control. I was enslaved to being born in Melbourne because my parents didn't live in Mozambique. Right? I'm not free to be 10 feet tall. I might really want to be, but I'm not free to do that. I'm not free to have blue eyes. I'm not free to have good eyes. Right? My eyes aren't very good. Likewise, I'm not free to be completely good or perfect or moral. I'm just not, not free to do that. I mean, you try even just for one day, even one part of a day, to not sin, to do the right thing. You say, I'm not a slave. Well, it's only when you start trying to take off the chains that you realise you are a slave. Some of you have had, you might not call it sin, but some of you have tried to throw off a bad habit. It's hard work, isn't it? It's only when you start trying to take off the chains that you realise you actually are enslaved to sin. None of us is perfect. So that's Paul's point in verse 9. All of humanity, doesn't matter who you are, everyone is enslaved to sin. Not only in the bad box, but stuck in the bad box. Helpless to do anything about it. And as uh, sinful human beings enslaved to sin, uh, humanity experiences all the effects of being enslaved to sin. This is uh, verses 10 to 18. Uh, and there's at least seven different effects that Paul unpacks here, and he does it uh, through a string of quotes from the Old Testament. Uh, I didn't include uh, the references to the quotes in the Connect card, but if you've got a Bible, you'll see all the kind of cross-references. I'll, I'll refer to them on the way through. Uh, but the first quote in verses 10 to 12 uh, is sort of from a combination of two Old Testament passages. The first is Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3, uh, and the second is uh, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20. And the point of this quote in verses 10 to 12 is that sin uh, affects humanity's legal status before God. That's the first part of the quote in verse 10. So Paul says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. It's a slight variation on Ecclesiastes 7, uh, Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20, which says, Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous who does what is right and never sins. You see what Paul's saying? In and of ourselves, none of us have the status of being righteous in God's sight. None of us are innocent, none of us are blameless, none of us are pure. If we're honest, 
we're in the bad box. None of us do the right thing all the time. And so Paul's saying here that as we enter God's heavenly court, his verdict, apart from Christ, his verdict is not you are innocent and moral and righteous, but you are guilty and immoral and unrighteous. There is no one righteous, not even one. So this is Paul saying that sin affects our legal status before God. Objectively, in God's court, we're all in the bad box. The verdict's not good. Our sin also affects our sinful humanity's thinking, their minds. Right? Kelly drew a bit of that out. So look in verse 11. There is no one who understands, Paul says. Right, but because we're, we're living in the bad box, uh, under the power of sin, the rule and reign of sin, uh, we just don't see spiritual things clearly, with any sort of clarity. I, know I referenced before, I've got this vision impairment, if you don't know, that means that physically speaking, I've got a whole lot of different blind spots. My perception of reality is sometimes a bit skewed, can't be trusted, that's why I don't drive anymore, Right? Well, spiritually speaking, that's what all of humanity is like. We've got blind spots to the truth about God. And so Romans 1 verse 18, Paul said this. He said, in humanity's sin, uh, they suppress the truth about God. We're just in denial about stuff. We're trying to push it down. We're filtering out all these truths about God. We're willfully blind to truths about God. Uh, Ephesians 4 verse 18, Paul says uh, that unbelievers, those who don't trust in the Lord Jesus, uh, are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Paul's point is that sin is no small thing. Sin affects everything. It's not just something that you do. It's something that we are. It affects our thinking, our mind. And notice in Ephesians 4, if you've got that passage, Ephesians 4 verse 18, uh, that the ignorance in, mo- in our mind uh, is caused by hardness of heart. So what Paul's saying there is that it's our uh, self-centered hearts that, that refuse to worship and glorify God and give him the glory that he deserves. Uh, our self-centered hearts uh, lead our minds to have all these blind spots about who God is. We're so consumed with ourselves that we cannot see God clearly even though the evidence for his existence and his power and his majesty it should be plain to everyone. But we push that aside. Sin affects humanity's legal status, Paul says. It affects our thinking, our minds, and it affects our desires. Look there, Paul says, no one seeks God. No one seeks God, Paul says. By default, all of humanity is running away from God rather than running towards God. Uh, my kids earlier, uh, Ada and Charlie, were playing uh, a game of hide-and-seek with their older cousin, Daniel. Uh, if you can imagine the, the, the cosmos in a cosmic game of hide-and-seek, Paul's saying all of humanity is hiding from God. No one's seeking. No one is seeking God. And you say, well, is that really true? I mean, like, I, I get that Paul's trying to make a point, but... Like, surely there are plenty of people seeking God, right? You see them. Like, they're praying, they're, they're, I don't know, meditating or going on a pilgrimage or going to some special temple. Surely they're seeking God. But notice what Paul doesn't say, right? He doesn't say that there's no one who seeks spiritual things. 
He doesn't say there's no one seeking spiritual answers, no one seeking spiritual blessings. He's saying there's no one who by default seeks God. No one has an innate desire to find God and know God and love God and enjoy God and delight in God simply for for God's sake, for who he is. I know plenty of people who might have a philosophical interest in the existence of God. They'll love to sit and chat and have intellectual conversation about God's existence, but for many of them, it's just a way of avoiding God, of keeping God at arm's length as some sort of abstract intellectual construct, not a real God to love and delight in and know. Or there might be someone even who has a real sense of personal need, and so they want God because he offers forgiveness to deal with their guilt. Or they want God because he offers peace to deal with their anxiety or, or wisdom to deal with the, the, all the complexities of life. And of course, there's nothing inherently wrong with seeking those things from God. God does promise to give us those things. I mean, the distinction Paul's making is seeking things from God is not the same as seeking God. Uh, There's plenty of people who are seeking God's stuff, but they're not seeking God. They're seeking God's gifts, his blessings, but they're not seeking God. Uh, You can do that, of course, by being very, very good or being very, very bad. You see that in the the parable Jesus tells in Luke 15 about the younger brother, the older brother. You know, the the younger brother who's stereotypically a stereotypical rebel, very, very bad. You know, says to his father, give me my share of the estate. Basically saying, Dad, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. And that's what lots of people are like with God. Oh, I want the stuff that God might offer, but, but I don't really want a relationship with God. I'm not seeking him. And likewise, the older brother in that story, uh, who's very, very good, says to his dad, you owe me all this stuff because of my obedience and sacrifice and service and my superior morality. And that's what lots of people are like with God, isn't it? You were never really in the whole Christianity thing for God himself, to seek God and know God. You were just hoping that maybe if you were better than the next person, God would bless you more. So Paul's saying that no one, uh, by default, apart from the work of God's Spirit, no one is seeking God. If anyone is seeking God... It's because God sought them first. That's the message of the, of the Bible. So sin affects humanity's uh, desires, our, our motives. Uh, it affects our legal status. It affects our thinking. Verse 12, uh, it affects our wills. Have a look uh, there in verse 12. All have turned away. They have t- together become worthless. Uh, there is no one who does good, uh, not even one. Some of you might remember a passage from the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, verse 6. Uh, Isaiah says, They're all we like sheep have gone astray. Uh, we have turned everyone to our own way. Uh, verse 12, Isaiah 53, verse 6, that they're really commenting on, on just how stubborn and, and willful humanity is, sinful humanity, a, a willful rejection of God. We don't want God to determine our lives. We, we want self-determination. 
We want to we want to write our own story. We want to choose our own path in life. We want to leave our own legacy. And we want to turn away from God's way so we can find our own way in life. Uh, which is why one of the most popular songs at funerals, you can Google this, but you know why one of the most popular songs at funerals is, is Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. Right? This is seen as a, as a badge of honour in our culture. Uh, they may not have done everything right, but good on them. They did it their way. Right? That's the heart of sinful humanity. Shaking my fist at God but at least I was true to myself. Uh, Verses 13 and 14, sin affects humanity's tongues. Uh, Verse 13 there, that's a quote from Psalm 5, verse 9. So we read, uh, their throats are open graves, uh, their tongues practice deceit. Uh, Throats there, you know, it's kind of referring to this part of your throat. It's actually kind of more literally your larynx. Uh, the point, uh, I guess, is to say that this is a, a problem that's really deep in our throats. Uh, right? And Paul's saying uh, the throats are like open graves, which is to say that uh, the throat of sinful humanity is like a, a kind of open pit uh, that's overflowing with dead and rotten bodies. That's a pretty graphic picture, isn't it? And if you're a Jewish person uh, where death is seen as, as spiritually unclean, the, the, the idea is that the, the throat of sinful humanity is kind of overflowing uh, with evil and unclean words, blasphemous words, words that, that uh, are scorning the name of God, uh, words that bring spiritual death. And so it's no surprise then if the throats of sinful humanity are so sinful, uh, the, the tongues would uh, follow suit. The tongues practice deceit, Paul says, which uh, deceit there is a bit stronger. Like maybe sometimes deceit, uh, we might think, oh, well, you know, what's wrong with a little white lie here and there? Uh, now, there is something perhaps wrong with that, but, but uh, this is a little bit stronger here. Deceit here it has a note of, of real treachery. Uh, The aim being to to use words maliciously and in an evil way uh, to cause harm to other people. uh, To be treacherous. And then at the end of verse 13, the the quote shifts to Psalm 140 verse 3. uh, The poison of vipers is on their lips. And this is not rocket science on one level. Like I, I think we've all experienced... The sense that humanity, and perhaps even you yourself, can speak poisonous words into the lives of other people. Words that are actually quite destructive. And that bring death rather than life. Like the the venom of a snake. That's the picture. And in verse 14, the quote is Psalm 10 verse 7. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Uh, Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, Paul says. There's no shortage. That's his point. A generous supply of cursing and bitterness. You know, it just keeps coming. That's the picture. Uh, So being uh, enslaved to sin affects humanity's tongues. Uh, Perhaps uh, many of you uh, heard when you were growing up, as I did, uh, that saying, uh, sticks and stones may break your bones, but names will never hurt me. 
Uh, and of course, maybe when you're a kid, there, there was some use into that. You don't want really to get too hung up on uh, a kind of word here and there from someone in the schoolyard. Uh, but of course, as you grow up, you realise, uh, for the most part, that saying's absolute rubbish, isn't it? It's rubbish. The tongue of sinful humanity is very powerful and destructive. Apart from the work of God's Spirit, our tongues tend to be used to wound rather than heal. To tear down rather than build up, to bring death rather than life. In James 3, uh, James says, the tongue holds the power of life and death. You can cut someone to pieces with your tongue in a moment. There's a picture of sinful humanity. Us being in the bad box and stuck in the bad box affects our tongues. And verses 15 to 17, you see that sinful humanity is not content with kind of tearing one another apart with their tongues, but we also want to take it a step further. We'll tear one another apart physically with our hands. So this is a quote from Isaiah 59, verses 7 and 8. Their feet... Uh, it says, are swift to shed blood. And just note there that they're swift to shed blood. The, the point is the eagerness of it. Swift, uh, swift to kill. That literally, literally to kill, to murder, uh, to destroy the lives of other people. Now that might seem extreme. I, I dare say that no one in this room on a small scale, we can say, uh, well, this isn't true because no one in this room has killed anyone else. right? Maybe you have. Let's talk about that. But if you look at human history on a big scale, you don't have to go very far to see that this is true of humanity, isn't it? We're swift to take life, to shed blood, to kill, to destroy. And so verse 16, ruin and misery mark their ways. It's not surprising that living this way, enslaved to sin, stuck in the bad box, it's not surprising that well, that would be ruinous. It would be really quite destructive, not just for individuals, but for uh, all of humanity. And that's important to remember, but because uh, in our lives, sin can seem, at least for a moment, to be pleasurable and comforting and satisfying. But it's a sting in the tail, isn't it? It seems good for a moment, but then you realise it's destructive. It promises lots, but it delivers little. It promises comfort and pleasure and satisfaction, but in the end it delivers misery. It delivers distress. And verse 17, the way of peace they do not know. Like sinful humanity so stuck on the way of ruin and misery that they're completely ignorant of the way of peace. It's not even on our radar. Apart from the work of God's Spirit, where we're just oblivious to God's ways. The way of peace they do not know, Paul says. Sin affects sinful humanity's legal status before God. Their thinking, their desires, their wills, their tongues, their relationships with one another. And finally, verse 18, their relationship with God. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Psalm 36, verse 1. This idea of fearing God, of course, is a really big theme 
uh, in the big story of the Bible. Uh, if you read Proverbs, you'll know that uh, it, it says over and over again that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That is, if you want to live well in the world that God has made, then you must relate rightly to God. You must fear God. Now, what does it mean to fear God? Uh, I think when we hear fear, uh, we are perhaps more likely to think that it means uh, living in terror of being punished by God. So that's kind of what we think. I fear God, that's what it has to mean. But uh, that might, that's an aspect of fearing God, but it can't just be that. Or you might want to write down Psalm 130 verse 4. Uh, it can't just be that because Psalm 130 verse 4, uh, the psalmist says, But with you there is forgiveness, so that with reverence, right, with fear, we serve you. You see, that the, the psalmist here says that he fears God because he knows what it is to be forgiven by God. He's not terrified by God. But he still fears God, he reveres God, he respects God. And that's what this is saying. Fear of God isn't simply uh, living uh, in terror of being punished by God, but relating to the God of the universe uh, with appropriate fear and awe and reverence. Respecting him as you should, as a creature before its creator. So perhaps you can see that in many ways this verse 18 uh, is the key or the heart of humanity's sin. Back in chapter 1, Paul said that uh, the heart of humanity's sin problem is a worship problem. You get that? The heart of our sin problem is a worship problem. It's the fact that by default, instead of living our lives in reverent fear of our glorious creator, the one who made us, we live our lives in reverent fear of created things. Instead of our lives orbiting uh, around the God of the universe, we allow our lives to orbit uh, around things in this world, in creation. For example, other people. They're created things, fellow creatures, but we might fear them more than we fear God. We might be more concerned about the opinion of our boss than we are about God's opinion. Our boss is big and God is small. We're more concerned about the verdict of our family or our friends or our colleagues than we are about God's verdict. Those people are big and God is small. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the message of Romans 1.18 to 3 verse 20 is that it would be foolish to be more concerned about the verdict of other people than the God of the universe. Because in the end, all of us have to appear before God's judgment seat in his heavenly courtroom. And on that day, the verdict will be clear that apart from Christ, everyone's enslaved to sin. Everyone experiences the effects of sin. And so verses 19 and 20, everyone will stand speechless and condemned before God. Look in verse 19. Everyone will stand speechless and condemned before God. Let me read from verse 19. Uh, now we know, Paul says, that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. So Paul's come to the end of his long string of quotes from the Old Testament that started back in verse 10 
And once again, he kind of anticipates in the background here, I think he's anticipating an objection from uh, a Jewish uh, person who might be reading his uh, letter, a sort of hypothetical person. And the, the person who might be saying, well, sure, I understand that that's all true for those Gentiles, you see. The, the ones in the bad box, right? Sure, they do bad things. Sure, maybe they're stuck in sin. They deserve to be judged, but not me, right? I'm a Jew. I, I'm in the good box. And so Paul says, but, but we know. We know. That is, all us Jewish people know that whatever the law says, right? The law there being the whole Old Testament, which is why Paul's gone to the effort of uh, making all these quotes from the Old Testament, right? So whatever the law says... It says to those who are under the law, right, those who kind of live their lives under the, under the sphere of the law, the hearing of the law. And so he's saying that the law uh, speaks primarily to the Jews. And of course his point is uh, that the law that this hypothetical Jew uh, pres- uh, possesses and takes pride in and maybe uh, might have even thought gave them a kind of free pass from God's judgment that same law is the law that will one day condemn them in God's court. Because even though they've always had that law and, and heard it and known it and been in and around God's law, they've been living under the law, uh, they don't obey it. At least not consistently or, or, or perfectly. Uh, so the result, Paul says, is that every mouth is silent before God. Every mouth, right? Not just the Gentiles, but the Jews too. In the end, all of humanity will realize that they're in the bad box. They'll realize that and they'll realize they've got nothing to say in their defense before God. No more excuses, no more blame shifting, no more explanations, no more justifications, just speechless. Awaiting God's verdict. And so in verse 20, Paul gives us God's verdict. Therefore, he says, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. That is to say, uh, by our own deeds, our works, our obedience, our, our moral performance, not one of us will be declared innocent in God's court. None of us, through our own efforts, can move ourselves from the bad box to the good box. None of us. And I think if you're honest uh, with yourself, you'll agree. You might have some really tight moral principles that you seek to live your life by, uh, but I suspect that you don't even live up to those, let alone God's perfect standards. So what's the point of God's law then? If it wasn't to show us how we could get ourselves in the good box or to move from the bad box to the good box, what's the point? If it wasn't to show us how we could qualify ourselves for heaven, for the afterlife, for eternal life, what's the point? Well, Paul says, rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. It's a bit like if you do archery, I don't know, well, what's the purpose of the bullseye in archery? For most of us, it's probably to tell us how much we're missing by. You know, maybe you're very good at archery, but right, like, it's mostly to tell us how much we're missing by all the straight edge of a ruler. You know, it's mostly to show us just how crooked we are. 
And Paul says God's perfect law, uh, in the same way, makes, us, makes it clear to us how far we're falling short. It makes us conscious of our sin. So perhaps you can think about uh, this section, uh, Romans 3, verses 9 to 20, uh, as Paul's closing statement in God's court. You know, lawyers, you know, they go through all the cross-examination, all that kind of thing. Then this is the closing statement. He's trying to drive home the verdict. The verdict being that everyone is enslaved to sin. Everyone experiences the effects of that slavery to sin. So that everyone, apart from Christ, stands speechless and condemned before God. So in many ways, Paul's demonstrated what he set out to demonstrate back in chapter 1, verse 18, which is that everyone needs the gospel. You know, the rest of Romans, he's going to be expounding the the glorious news of the gospel. But first, he he had to help us to see that we needed the gospel. If the gospel is the cure, the, the wonderful antidote to sin, then everyone has to understand that they're sick. Or else you say, well, that's nice, but I don't need it. So Paul's been aiming to to get us all to a point where we go, everyone needs the gospel, the good news of what our God has done for us in Christ. So if you look back in Romans 1 verse 16, Paul said, Therefore I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. You see what he's saying? Everyone needs the gospel. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you need the gospel. Why? Because everyone is a sinful person uh, who's enslaved to sin and they need to be saved from God's just judgment. How does the gospel bring this salvation? Well, Romans 1 verse 17. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from the first to the last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Right? The gospel, you see, is such powerful good news, uh, not because it, it gives you some tips on how you can make yourself a little bit better than the next person in the bad box, but because it tells you how you can be saved from your biggest problem in life. Some of you perhaps think that your biggest problem in life is some financial issue or how you're going with your university studies or a particular parenting challenge that you're having or a particular health issue. And I don't want to demean those, uh, kind of diminish the seriousness of those problems. They are problems, no doubt. They're very painful problems that you experience to be real burdens. But the fact remains that apart from Christ, humanity's biggest problem is God, a holy and righteous God before whom we have to stand and receive his verdict of guilty. That's our biggest problem. And the gospel tells us how we can be saved from God's judgment. It tells us that we can be saved. Romans 1 verse 17, uh, not by putting our faith in ourselves and our works, but by putting our faith in Christ and his work on the cross. It's a salvation that is by faith from first to last. Faith in someone else, not in yourself. Faith in Christ. Because as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, Paul says, God made uh, Christ who had no sin to be sin for us. Uh, God uh, made Christ to to die in our place on the cross uh, so that in him, Paul says, by by faith in him, we might become the righteousness of God. This is the good news of the gospel. The powerful news that when you believe that Christ uh, died in your place, he was clothed in your sins on the cross. When you believe that, uh, then by faith you are clothed in his righteousness. 
in his perfect life, his blameless life, because he's the only human being who's ever lived completely in the good box. So you get his perfect record by faith. So for those of us who are in Christ by faith, which is many of us, praise God that the verdict in God's heavenly court is no longer that you are sinful and guilty and unrighteous, but you are holy and innocent and blameless. You are righteous, completely righteous, because by faith you are in Christ. More about that from next week. We're going to talk about that a lot. For today, apart from faith in Christ, we're saying everyone is not only in the bad box, but they're stuck in the bad box. Everyone is enslaved to sin, and so everyone needs the gospel. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we are... We thank you for this part of your word. It does have some hard truths. We do pray by the power of your spirit that you would help us to see clearly uh, what our spiritual condition is apart from faith in Christ. Uh, That sin uh, affects every part of our being, uh, our world. Uh, That uh, we not only do some bad things, but uh, we're stuck in bad things. We're enslaved to sin experiencing the effects of that slavery. Help us to come to the place where we recognize that uh, apart from the the good word of the gospel, uh, we have no words to say in our defense. Apart from leaning on Christ, we've got nothing else to lean on. Uh, Please, Father, do this work in our hearts. Uh, that we might appreciate the glorious good news uh, of our Lord Jesus uh, that we'll hear more about from next week and in in whose name we pray. Amen.